Welcome to Break Fake Rules. My name is Glenn Gallich, and this is our little show. We're glad to have you here. We're really excited today because we have one of the great fake rule breakers with us today, and that's Pia Infante. Here she is. Uh, what is a fake rule? Well, in my view, a fake rule is a practice that is seen as like the best practice. It is the way to do things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these fake rules become barriers to you know, real change and real benefit to communities. So we started exploring that here uh, at the Stupski Foundation and have, I think, broken a number of fake rules. But sometimes you have to be really inspired by people who break fake rules. And having you here today, really, you are the one. I think you are the leading fake rule breaker. It's great to have you here. And on top of it, which I learned this week, one of the greatest karaoke singers I've ever seen. Because here's why. You don't only sing when you're up there. There's a show going on. It's a full production. (laughs) So tell us first, how do we end up in karaoke? How do we not end up in karaoke as a profession? That's the question everybody's wondering right now. Me personally or all of us in general? Yes, you. Well, that too. Let's do both. Well, good question. Singing has been like the most liberating and therapeutic thing ever for me, and particularly singing in groups like gospel choirs. So... How did I not end up a singer? Um, I am a singer. I'm an amateur, like unprofessional, unpaid singer. So you're a professional to all of us. I mean, <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's something about how I do it that is like facilitative of shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Because I think shenanigans are very important in general. I think that's a that's a fake rule in philanthropy we can start with. Right there. Right why are the there bat. no shenanigans? Like why is it that we must take ourselves so seriously um, and not integrate joy and fun and shenanigans yeah. in how we operate, you know, in the world. So I wanted to say, uh, I don't know if I've ever told I, mean, I think I may have told you this, but so for years I was running an organization that convened people. So as a result of that, I did not want to go to any other convenings. I did not go to any philanthropy conferences. I didn't do any of that. And when I came over to Stupski, I kind of, I kind of continued that for a couple of years and realized at some point I should start going out there. And so when I went to my first conference, one of the first people I saw on stage was you. I went to the GEO conference mm. here in San Francisco. But None you got people. up on stage. Here we were a spend down. I wasn't even really familiar with the Whitman Institute, which, by the way, I failed to say is... A foundation you co-led and until you officially spent down and you were on stage and you said to the group you appealed to the group and you used a water metaphor of some kind I think you said something like we tend to drop drips of water into the situation we should be dumping buckets of money onto what's going on and I thought wow there are other people out there that are doing spend downs and they're not afraid to get on stage to talk about it mm-hmm. so let's start there a little bit when you look out at the world of philanthropy, you clearly have looked at it with, with an eye toward using the terms we use here at the fake rules and wondering mm-hmm. what impact they're having on, mm-hmm. on impact. Mm-hmm. So spending down may have been one of the first ones that brought you in. Were there other, other ones out there that really stood out to you? In terms of fake rules? Yes. Lots of fake rules. So the fake rule that, for instance, like, I think the metaphor that I used then was we need tidal waves, not teaspoons. There we go. So the idea is that a lot of philanthropy is done like this. Let's give, like, a time-limited grant. 
and it could be small, sometimes a test, you know? And then the problems that philanthropy is trying to solve are complex long-term systems, mm-hmm. right? Right. So how is it that we get to, we want to, let's just say, end hunger, and we're going to give a one, a 12-month restricted grant to an organization that's really working on systemic change. So even that, just the concept of teaspoons and the way, and the teaspoon concept goes all around philanthropy, sort of like this, instead of thinking, let's give unmitigated resources and talent in collaboration with folks, it's sort of like, let's do teaspoon drops in these buckets. So we can sort of sit in an ivory tower and say, we're sort of testing, or we're, we're sort of testing whether or not we trust these organizations to carry things out. Yeah. So I think that's a structure. The 5% payout to me is a teaspoon structure. Right? Absolutely. So you've got 95% of the endowment working on all kinds of different things. And then over here, as you've said before, uh, there's like a tiny amount, like a little teaspoon going to grant making that is maybe unrestricted, but maybe still restricted. Right. And so, you know, when, the way you just said that, it made me think of something, that most of these fake rules come back to some, in philanthropy for sure, and I would imagine beyond philanthropy, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It comes back to control. Mm-hmm. I don't know how often we talk about it this way, but the idea that you want to end hunger in 12-month segments yep. is all about, there's some fear there on the part of the donor mm-hmm. that if we give them too much more than 12 months, mm-hmm. we might lose control of where this all goes. So let's talk about the, one of the big ones. The giant of control and fake rules is a concept that I I have to admit I played a big role in promoting until I saw the light, and that's strategic philanthropy. Mm -hmm. But let's talk more about what it is. So I think at the heart of strategic philanthropy is the donor centrism of it. And if you talk to anyone out of strategic philanthropy, they will say one of the biggest differences between strategic philanthropy and, say, trust-based philanthropy is that it all comes down to the fact that this is, quote, unquote, the donor's money. And so the donor's choices about how they decide to deploy that money, whether they want to do it in teaspoon increments, whether they want to do it to certain kinds of organizations over others. So the donor then develops a strategy, sometimes in conjunction with consultants, um, many of whom are very highly paid, to come up with donor-centric, donor-led strategies. So already that's an entire construct that says this money that has been taken out of tax rotation or has been extracted from cheap labor or in, mm-hmm. in any of the ways that wealth is accumulated, right. this money is quote unquote mine um, because it's my name on the head of the corporation. And so I think that first of all, that is a misconception <laughs> about what philanthropic dollars actually are, right. which is their dollars that are, have been taken out of rotation for the public good. Right. And so I think the fake rule first that donors are the ones that should determine the strategic pathways and how to evaluate impact, it seems odd, actually, because the donor may have no experience at all in that field or community or issue. So I think the fake rule around the my money, that it's my money to do with as I wish, feels like something to push against. Right, and you said strategy. Yeah. But before we get to strategy, you get to goals. That's the first thing that's set. To me, one of the fake rules that we rarely, rarely ever talk about is that we establish issue areas, mm-hmm. which is weird. Mm-hmm. When you, I mean, all, all the fake rules tend to be kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Humanity experiences the world in many, many different ways mm-hmm. every second of the day. Mm-hmm. But we're going to try to push out all the variables that could interfere mm-hmm. with our ability to address one tiny aspect of humanity because we're going to change that one thing, and that... It's going to change everything. 
whether it be education, mm -hmm. climate change, environment. Mm -hmm. And once you get into those silos, uh, as we've talked about here in very recent days, mm -hmm. it's hard to cross them. Mm -hmm. um, there is something different about saying, let me pick an issue area in San Francisco that I think is going to be the lever, right? right? Versus let's Let's, let's talk to some San Franciscans. Let's talk to some of the folks that aren't actually doing very well in San Francisco, that are sleeping in homeless encampments all along the street. Um, and let's become a group of people who listen to the people that are most impacted by what we think of as the problems. You know, if I, a wealthy person who's thinking about how to give away my money, think that maybe climate is a problem or that maybe the wage gap or racial wealth gap is a problem, I should probably talk to people who are actually impacted by it. So there's something different about so people sort of imagine that strategic only comes from consultants and donors getting together, whereas I think the best strategies, as we've seen, come from bringing together folks that are impacted in communities and asking the leadership there, what are the best ways to get at it? And most of them will, none of them will say, pick one issue area and go really deep in that right. single issue area. Yeah. And then pay a bunch of people to become experts in one single issue area. Right. They will say they're impacted by all things at once. And if you look at maybe like a trans person's experience on the streets of San Francisco, they will mm. say any number of things are <clears throat> impacting their lived experience. Housing, you know, joblessness. Um, discrimination against getting jobs, you know, different policies around different structural realities. There isn't enough public good being funded by the government. There is a weird fake rule or fake assumption that strategy equals better impact, mm -hmm. that for some reason, if you're strategic in your mindset, that that will lead to more impact. And I think that the definition of strategy has just been too donor-centric. Yeah, I mean, when you say it that way, it makes me think, you can create all kinds of data that says you're having impact on the goal that you've created exactly. without actually helping society. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can pay a whole bunch of folks to watch that one strand. Mm -hmm. The thing that I have always pushed against is the idea that community-centric or trust-based types of ways of collaborating or being in deep partnership and accountability to specific communities, whether they're identity-based or regional or, um, or whatever, is that it's not strategic. I'm like, isn't it the most strategic? Isn't it the most strategic to find out from people how their lives are being impacted, what solutions could help them? Isn't it the most strategic to put them at the design table? That is one of the big pet peeves of mine is that somehow strategic philanthropy, which is there any evidence that strategic philanthropy is more impactful, Glenn? If I were answering that question 15 years ago uh, as a head of an organization training individual donors on it, I would have said... Um, Probably, and I'd say that because for those that are not in the business of philanthropy, or maybe more so the, those that are in the business of philanthropy, and you look out at charitable dollars that are going everywhere, my belief then was that it was chaos. It's chaos, or, or worse, mm. it's not chaos. It's extremely well organized. And, um, for those that are strong believers in strategic philanthropy, they do believe that they're bringing rationality to an otherwise overly emotional world. Mm -hmm. That in fact, everything you've just said mm -hmm. around assumptions, mm -hmm. they would say, hey, we actually break those assumptions down mm -hmm. and we put real data behind mm -hmm. our strategic decision-making. So then how do you respond mm -hmm. to, to that kind of statement? I have no problem with data. Data is useful. Data is an input, right? Data can be a good measure, mm -hmm. but 
data, like who, who gets to choose what data is important and who gets to choose how to interpret that data? That is my question, mm -hmm. right? So the other fake rule there is the thought that somehow emotion is not data. Right. That feeling itself is not data. That compassion and empathy is not informative. Um, you first have to ground in a sense of deep accountability, I think, to a community or a set of communities that you're, you're hoping to uplift or change. All of us are in this because we see some kind of social or economic or climate-based or maybe political problem in the world. That's why we're, I mean, most of us, that's why we're in Philanthropy, including donors, right? We see that there's nothing, there's no amount of wealth that can insulate any of us from the terror that I think is instigated by the potential political chaos or economic chaos or climate chaos. It's mm -hmm. literally happening right now. Mm -hmm. So no matter how much alternative realities are out there or how much we can try to contest truth, there is data about what's going on in economies, climates, and nation states all over the world. Like that's just important data to understand. So those of us that are in this work, because we want to see, we deeply understand um, that we, we need to see some kind of tidal wave type change in the world. I think that the desire for strategy comes from a sense of accountability, right? Like I wanna steward the dollars responsibly. And I get that. And I've, I've said the words, I think philanthropy should be less donor-centric. It's not because I think donors should disappear or donors are not important in the story. I think we just need to right-size or reimagine the role that donors play. I agree. So it's really about decentering donor preferences and maybe sometimes donor feelings, right, mm -hmm. to be in deeper <clears throat> accountability to the communities that we serve. We could... Um, decenter sort of the role that donor preference plays. And we could actually deploy strategic thinking, but always in collaboration with the communities that we're accountable to. So what are the strategies and what are the sets of data that are important to those communities and the leaders in those communities? So I would say that I'm not questioning the use of data or strategy. It's more about who it's accountable to, who gets to choose it, and who gets to interpret it. There's so many things you're just touching away at here. I really think one of the most important things that philanthropy needs to embrace deeply is what does it mean to steward other people's money? Mm -hmm. I think at the very baseline, there has to be an understanding between the community and the donor that the money is more the community's than it is the donor's. So perhaps we could talk a little right. bit about that. Well, there is no trust without truth. And we have to tell the truth about how this economic system is rigged. Yeah. Right? One of the biggest fake rules is somehow that folks that are sitting on top of a lot of wealth are valorized to be smarter and better. Right. When actually the system is structured to make sure they win. Right? So that's the first truth is that how wealth is even accumulated, whether you call it my wealth or anybody else's wealth, is already rigged with a whole bunch of pre-existing dynamics and levers to make sure that some people win and a lot of people lose. Right. This society valorizes wealth which means that this society valorizes inequitable structures and systems that make sure that some people are wealthy. But wouldn't some someone don't. say, look, you have to be particularly impressive to succeed economically. Look at the brilliance of an entrepreneur. They looked at a problem and they said, we can do this differently. Shouldn't we look to that type of person who sees right. the world differently to solve not only how packages arrive on our doorstep, <laughs> But also <laughs> how we feed people effectively. Because look, if they can get the package on your doorstep better than anybody else, let's go back, surely let's go they back can get to the initial there. brilliant entrepreneur. 
let's go back. Let's there. say that that let's say five people had that idea at the exact same time, right? Guess which of those entrepreneurs are going to get venture capital dollars? Just guess which. Is it going to be a woman? Is it going to be a person of color? Is it going to be uh, someone who doesn't have a Harvard degree? Is it someone? Is it going to be someone who has no connections at all with high, any high net worth individuals? I'm going to answer for you. No. Who chooses who's brilliant? Right? Is the people that are already in the venture capital to get be able to but give weren't away they, five weren't they brilliant to get there to choose? They might have been born into wealth. They mm -hmm. might have been born into an Ivy League mm -hmm. family. Mm -hmm. So let me just tell you one little story. So the the institute that I used to steward, the endowment of the Whitman Institute. The, the capital was created based on Charles Crocker, a San Franciscan right here. Um, and he was a smart entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And um, he wanted to build the Transcontinental Railroad. So the federal government gifted him with lands that had been violently taken from tribes all over the North America um, to be able to entrepreneurially build mm -hmm. the first Transcontinental Railroad. So even in that just one little story, you could valorize Charles Crocker. Wow, what a smart guy. And he imported Chinese laborers and paid them nothing from right. China. Like what? So sometimes I hear entre brilliant entrepreneur and sometimes I hear someone who's willing to receive um, undeserved benefit for <laughs> and then also extract you know, wealth from cheap labor and land theft. That this is the trust relationship that starts out. Yes. <laughs> I yes. mean, this is right where it begins. Yes. This is, and, and now you're going to layer on top of it. Right. The idea that Charles Crocker gets to decide. Right. Because no one's asking the question, is it his money or right. our money? Right. Charles Crocker gets to decide. Right. What in San Francisco he thinks should change mm -hmm. and or improve. And he's going to assemble the greatest minds mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. And now, and they're going to appear at some point with a series of solutions for the community to welcome. Right. There's a lot of flaws in that. First of all, Charles Crocker's family is what helped build the immense amount of inequality in San Francisco. Right. right? That recipe is the recipe in philanthropy, what right. you just described. You know, a donor looking upon, let's say, a city. And, and, and a, let's throw in, with best of intentions. With best of it, again. Yes. Like, it's not that I would say Charles Crocker should then be, like, walked out of the equation. It's more that maybe Charles Crocker, if he was here... I would invite him into a process of inquiry about both like the impact of the wealth accumulation that he led, mm -hmm. right, on Chinese laborers, on any number of communities, but also sit down with the actual San Franciscans and ask them, like in a process of inquiry and learning, what is going on here? I actually, I actually want to do something good with the wealth that I've accumulated here. What is it that I can do? Mm -hmm. in, the, in the case of the Whitman Institute, just to cap that story for Charles Crocker, even though he did not participate in this decision, we decided to grant our final uh, large grant to Sogore Ate, which is a land rematriation group here in San Francisco that's reclaiming Ohlone lands for themselves. But there are arcs. Like, I guess there are ways to come around this story and not just vilify. Like, we can go from valorization to vilification very easily, right? So I think that somewhere there's a place in between that nobody is, you know, superior and nobody is, like, inferior. And how do we, how do we bring folks together at common tables to actually discuss the shared vision of a better San Francisco together? It would be interesting 
if there were just a counter, a ticker going on all the fake rules that have hit the table in this particular set of things you said. So donor is always right is a big one. The other big one, I think, is that the donor knows the best strategy. Yeah. And let me just throw out there, because mm-hmm. uh, this could be a very long answer for you, so you decide how you want to handle it. Sure. But where have things at times been misinterpreted in that concept, mm-hmm. even amongst people who try to actually do it? So in terms of the donor is always right, you know, one way I would reimagine that phrase is the donor can be part of something good. And there is something about letting go of control and power and determination of what happens with dollars that feels like a big let go. So there feels like there's a loss when we're saying let's give up some control, power, and determination, and it can feel like a disequilibrium. How am I doing good in the world? Hmm. How am I doing good in the world if I'm not writing these checks and sort of getting involved in how they sort of flow out into impact? And I will posit that there's something much more satisfying about asking that question into the uncertainty and mystery of the future. There's something more infinitely satisfying about doing it in deep collaboration, partnership, and engendering trust in that process. There's something that I will say healing about that, especially if you're if we're donors that want to be accountable to how that wealth is accumulated. There's something that's more powerful when you do it collectively than when you do it individually. And that is that happened in the story of the Whitman Institute. John Esterly, who is the executive director, could have just said, this is my money. You know, the donor died. He left it to me. This is my money. I'm going to steward it towards all the things that I like and want and people that I care about. Hmm. And what he often says is that when he gave that responsibility over to a larger group, essentially that the effort became so much more powerful than it ever could have been. So one of the things I think donors like lay in bed at dream about is like, what is the legacy of my my family or my impact? And I don't think that's a wrong dream. I'm just suggesting that the dream could be bigger and the story could get bigger um, and the solutions could be wider and more complex if we involve more than just our our regular kitchen cabinet, more than just that expensive consultant that your friend recommended. So I think the invitation here is not to hear this conversation as a shaming or a get out of here. It's more an invitation to get in here and get in here with a wider set of people, especially people who are impacted by the problems that we are trying to solve. Well, that went by very quickly. I know it went by quickly for me, and I really appreciate you coming in here. By the way, I think it should be known, Pia is a board member of the Stupsky Foundation, so disclosure: we are benefiting every day from your presence <laughs> here. I want to thank you also for joining us on Break Fake Rules, and we'll be back again with lots of fake rules to break. I hope you'll join us. Next time on Break Fake Rules, hear from Jen Wynn, Director of Post-Secondary Success here at the Stupsky Foundation, as she talks about the changes she hopes to see in philanthropy and why she thinks big philanthropy should cease to exist. The more that I'm in this field, the more that I'm convinced that there might be more irreparable harm than actual good from the field. Thank you for tuning in to Break Fake Rules. This show is brought to you by the Stupsky Foundation, where we are returning all our resources to the communities we call home in Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area by 2029. Our producer extraordinaire is Claire Callahan. 
The show is mixed and edited by Patrick Childers of Odd Conduit Media. Special thanks to our videographers and visual production team who fly from all over the world to be a part of this, Steve Johnson and Brooke Van Dam of Sea Boundless. Subscribe to the Stepsky Foundation YouTube channel to watch videos of each episode. You can find us on YouTube by searching Stepsky Foundation. We hope these conversations don't end here, so join the conversation with me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.